Bree Corey is the... I'm the librarian of the Robertson Davies Library at Massey College in the University of Toronto. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. You are an expert on the history of the book. Well, I'm a scholar of the history of the book. Um, I don't know that I would claim to be an expert. There are many aspects of it that I'm still learning about. That's the thing about books, isn't it? There's just so much to learn. We know you open one page and it leads to so many other mm -hmm. fascinating stories. That's very true. And it's one of the things that I enjoy most about the work that I do because I, I feel like I'm always learning something and expanding my understanding of the world around us in a variety of different ways. The world around us as recorded mm -hmm. in a book. Yes, and the methods of producing those books and the methods of illustrating those books. And presenting and that presenting information. presenting that information to an audience that has, well, changed somewhat over the centuries. That's a whole other aspect too, mm -hmm. isn't it? It's the writer and the reader, the presentation and how it's received. Let's start though with assuming that I'm a multi-grazillionaire <laughs> who has suddenly taken an interest in the history of the book and has retained you to develop his collection. How would we start? It would be nice to be as broadly based as possible. So you would want to collect material that reflects ancient records, cuneiform tablets, for example, seals and other ways of, of documenting language uh, from ancient times. You'd probably want to try to get an example of a, a Roman inscriptional tablet, like the one that's on the wall right there, mm -hmm. showing the capital letters. That's uh, actually a, a monument for a, a, a woman who died at the age of 35. It's probably still possible to, to buy artifacts like that. So you'd want to, to document the forms of recording language and literature. Um, you'd also want to acquire examples of script, the, the letter form. So here we have the letter form, the Roman capital letters, which become the basis of the capital letters in what we call now the Roman typeface. You'd be working in two ways. You'd want to acquire material about the history of the subject, as well as acquiring examples mm -hmm. of printed matter and written matter over the centuries. I wouldn't limit it to just the printed book. I would look to find examples of text and decorated manuscripts from ancient times to present day, although we tend to think of of those written texts as ending at the time that printing is invented. Mm. That wasn't the case. They continued to overlap for many decades. And in some cases, there are still texts that are being pr produced today that are in fact being produced as script or copies of script mm -hmm. rather than something that's been set up in type or a designed on a computer yeah. uh, graphic. and Something's computer. come between the hand and the paper. Yeah. So I, I would set out to provide examples of, of the, the recording of language, manuscripts, other ways of documenting things like tally sticks. And I would also begin to look for the texts that had been written by people who were attempting to describe that. Who's the giant to well, start with? Gee, that's a good question. You're dealing at, in the earliest days probably with the historians of the events. Richard de Bury, Philo Biblon, the love of books. He sure. was English. 
late Middle Ages. It's a book about the love of books, the acquiring of books, reasons for wanting to acquire books. It has been printed many times over the centuries since it was written. We would want to acquire some of the earliest accounts of the development of the printing press and also some examples of the books that were printed in the first 50 years of printing. Lots of Bibles, I bet. A lot of Bibles, but also chronicles. Many of them were illustrated. Some of them actually include references to the development of the art and craft of printing. Hmm. Manuals on how to do it, I would think. Well, curiously, it was a well-kept secret for a Hmm. long time. The the reason why it wasn't written down is part of the tradition of the guilds Mm -hmm. that existed in Europe at the time. We know what we know about Johann Gutenberg because of the legal battle that he had with his partner, Johann Fust, over the money that Fust had put up for the experiments that Gutenberg was carrying out. Had it not been for that financial matter and legal case, we probably would not know very much about Gutenberg at all. The accounting of how printing came about and the manuals really don't come until a bit later. There is a little booklet that was published by Christopher Plantan, who was a, a printer in Antwerp in the 16th century on calligraphy and printing. This is done as a, a dialogue in very vague and general terms, so that when it talks about the casting of type, it really isn't totally clear. You couldn't have taken this as a, as a manual, but it does give us some idea of the activities of the printing shop. One of the other things that gives us an idea are images that appear, um, the earliest one appearing in a dance macabre, a Dance of Death, uh, of 1499. That's All the name of, the, of this book? That's the name of the book. The Dance Macabre was a medieval mo- morality tale, basically, that both in words and in pictures informed the community that death was inevitable, death comes to the great and the lowly. These were woodcuts, were they? Yes, but the earliest images, they were painted images on the the walls of charnel houses in the churchyard in many places throughout Europe. And there are very many permutations of the dance macabre in different traditions in different countries. The text was first printed in 1470. Subsequent editions of it had more and more members of society added to it. So in this 1499 edition printed in Lyon, we have an image of the printing house showing the compositor at work, pressmen trying to fight the death skeletons off, and Mm -hmm. also uh, in one section of it, a shop where the books were being sold adjacent to the printing house. The other early images that we have of the printing houses come from printer's marks, the way in which the printer of the book would have identified himself to a growing audience. Like the silversmiths had their yes, marks. Yes, the, exactly. The non-such bear comes yes, to mind. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Fust and Schoffer, Fust Johann, Fust who was Gutenberg's partner, mm-hmm. and Peter Schoffer, they basically took over the uh, material that uh, had been in, in use in printing the Bible that we attribute to Johann Gutenberg. And you know, 
we were lucky enough, if there was a Bible that actually came up for sale, yeah, we would try for that too. Now, it would probably be at auction. Sotheby's or Bloomsbury? Sotheby's or, or Christie's or Christie's. One, of, one of the uh, continental auction houses. It's been a while since the Gutenberg Bible has come up for sale. Okay, put aside a few pennies, coppers. We'd also want to get a copy of Joseph Moxon's Mechanic Exercises. What we really want to do, and I don't think any copy has survived in this way, Moxon was originally printed in parts, in numbers, spread out over a period of time. That made the cost of it a little bit less expensive to the buyer because you, instead of paying, for example, three pounds for it, you only had to pay a shilling per part. And Moxon didn't only write about printing. His The mechanic exercises included a whole range of mechanic activities. Like typesetting and, and... Well, that's all part of, of the, um, the, the mechanic exercises as they relate to printing. But there were other technologies that he was describing in other parts of the mechanic exercises. His manual gives us information on the construction of the printing press, on the manufacture of type, type founding, on how a printing house should be set up the work of the compositors, the work of the pressmen, the importance of your storeroom, diagrams that, that give us a sense of excruciating detail in a way, but detail that is absolutely essential to understand the process. It definitely was a manual. There wouldn't I mean, be much of an audience for that, they wouldn't think. And yet, printing probably was a was a huge industry, was it? Well, it certainly had grown from the middle of the 15th century to the end of the 17th century when Moxon was producing the manual. It's an interesting question as to who he thought the audience would be. As I said, he was including other trades in what he was writing about, printing just being one of them. Whether or not we'd be able to acquire one of the manuscripts, I don't think that's... Highly likely at this stage. That's going to probably uh, cost us. Mm-hmm. Okay. We probably want to have as many printed editions of it as well. I suppose the different introductions are quite interesting, giving different perspectives, do. scholarship. Definitely. Okay. So, so we've we, got him. We've got Moxon. Oh, we'd have to have Johnson's Dictionary too. Because? Well, it's, it's such an important example of a book that had... A tremendous influence on the language. I would see the history of the book, you'd want to include something like Johnson's Dictionary because it has an impact on the way the language progresses. We'd also want to have a copy of the King James Bible. Wouldn't that open up a Pandora's not if we have the money to spend. Not if we have the money, that's right. But then every single, not every single field of of study, but certainly Darwin's Origin of Species, would that fit into our well, collection it, or not? It, again, that goes back to... We have to draw some lines. Are you, as the collector, wanting to have material that's very specifically related to the art and craft of printing and the various trades that are affiliated with it and, and just focusing specifically on that or would you like to have examples of great books as well especially great books that have had an influence on future books I think 
we would want to have the King James Bible. Mm -hmm. I also think we would want to have the four folios of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Because when we think about how the language of those two books, so to speak, the King James Bible and the collected plays of Shakespeare, have affected our language and literature, that to me is part of the history of the book. Yeah, that's a, so, that's a so broad, there are two broad different, scope. If I were advising you, I would try to convince you that it's important to have examples of things like the King James Bible. But I might come back to you and say, well, I agree, obviously, with the development of the book as an object, mm -hmm. and I agree with you that we should have examples of all sorts of new ways of manufacturing the book. Okay. So, yes, I'd like to see examples of when typesetting came in, or lithographs, or, mm -hmm. or, or whatever the new development might be. But how would you justify Shakespeare and King James and the like? Well, I think because those texts had an incredible influence upon English literature. If you think about how often phrases from Shakespeare appear in oh, at the beginning the of language. so many books too, don't they? The King James Bible as a literary text was very, very influential. Whether or not you know you were raised in the Church of England. Still not convinced, though. Okay. Well, I'll have to think about my argument for the King James Bible. I think what is convincing, somewhat convincing, is, yes, Shakespeare wrote some of humankind's most magnificent uh, lyrics and words, phrases, sentences, plays. So many editions of that particular work were spawned because of its mm -hmm. magnificence. So in that sense, it motivated the production of an object that would do justice to it. I'm not sure that I would say the first folio is a particularly beautiful book. And the editions of Shakespeare's plays came out in many different formats, sizes. Some many of them, of them tiny. Many of them tiny, almost illegible. Some of them illustrated, some not. I mean, I, I think the real question would be, for you as the collector, how far you would want to go in having examples and it would be my role to to convince you that there's something about this particular example that makes it important in terms of that component of the library that you would be building. But to go back for a moment to the, the material about the history of printing, following Moxon, you have a number of printer's manuals in every language. There are a number of English ones that basically are taking Moxon and in the 18th century, modifying it slightly and changing the language so it's a little bit simpler. Very technical, eh? Just in explaining, for example, how you move the type from the composing stick onto the galley tray, <laughs> it's like trying to explain in text how you tie your shoelace. And so Moxon's <laughs> text seems very, very complex and complicated when he's explaining how the pressmen go through the various stages of getting everything in the right place and the right amount of packing in between the two uh, timpans, all of which comes under the rubric of make-ready. Uh, subsequent printer's manuals did cut the language down a bit. Printing for dummies. Not quite. No. I think part of it was that the amount of detail for some things was not seen to be quite as necessary. Mm -hmm. In the, the printing houses, the apprentices learned their trade as apprentices, and they served an apprenticeship of 
usually about seven years. You'd think um, the guilds might object to that, given the, the, the protective... The writing down of it? The writing down of it. Well, that's probably why we did not have a manual until Moxon. And even when um, Moxon came out with it, that probably caused a stir. Certainly, judging from the number of English manuals that appear in the 18th century, it's less of an issue. We don't know the numbers that they were produced in, how many copies were produced. Generally speaking, for the earliest ones, there aren't a huge number of copies that survive. So we would want to be looking, since I get the sense from you as the collector, that you're really interested in documenting the progress of printing, the technology. Yeah. That's, that's something that interests you. So we would try to get as many of the manuals as we could in whatever languages that they were printed in. We would have to be prepared to pay a decent amount of money, Moxon being the most expensive, obviously. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? Hundreds of thousands, probably. So there are those range of printer's manuals, and I think we would want to try to buy as many of them as possible because you get sort of incremental changes, even yeah. in what we call the hand press period, before we get into the uh, steam-powered presses of the 19th century, let alone the iron hand presses, which were at the very beginning of the 19th century. Manuals of the 19th century do begin to record the changes of the, the printing presses, the development of the iron hand presses, and also the development of uh, steam-powered presses. What did the iron hand press do? Well, the iron hand presses were constructed in a very similar fashion, two components. The common press, the wooden press. The, wooden, that's what Gutenberg? Yeah, basically. Okay. Had wooden uprights, which held in place a mechanism that originally was a screw, later became a sort of spindle, a bar was attached to that to turn the screw or the spindle, and when it was turned to its maximum depth, it would force down a hard either plank of wood or piece of marble, which was called the platen. It would force that down onto the bed of the type. The type would sit on what was a horizontal board. The type would sit on top of that, and it would be rolled under the platen in order to take the impression. The iron hand presses basically still have your vertical support structure, which holds the mechanism that's going to raise and lower the platen, and it has the horizontal mechanism that holds the type and brings it under the platen and back out again. The difference with the iron hand presses was that you could get a crisper, more consistent image. It's because it's made out of iron instead because of wood. Because it's made so out of no uh, malleability. You had greater stability. The wooden presses had to be braced up into the ceiling of the press room mm -hmm. so that when you were pulling the bar, the torque that you were creating wasn't going to cause the whole thing to sort of wobble. And smudge. But you also, with the earliest versions of the wooden press, the size of the bed was quite large the size of Shakespeare folio. In order to print one side of the sheet of that large folio, you had to actually take two pulls on each side because the platen could only be big enough to actually print one side, one half of the sheet. To push down. To push on one down. And that, yeah. the problem was that you couldn't get a strong enough upright support to support something that was long enough and wide enough to print the entire form. So every time you, you were printing a sheet of text, yeah. you had to take two pulls per side of the sheet. So that meant four pulls if you were printing text on both sides. 
So you're cutting with, it in half. Then. And with the iron presses, you were able to, to take a pole that would print the entire side of the sheet. More efficient, obviously. Oh, yeah. And there were other elements to the make-ready on the iron presses that made printing easier and more efficient. As I mentioned, the, the printer's manuals of the 19th century would begin to tell you about those improvements. One of the things that would be left out of the later printer's manuals that Moxon included was the whole section on typefounding because certainly by the 18th century, most printers weren't doing their own type founding. They would get it from foundries. And that's another thing we would want to get, specimens of type founding. What the typeface looked like? What typefaces were available, what sizes were available. We know in the, in the 16th century that at fairs like the Frankfurt Fair, printers would not necessarily buy whole fonts of type, but the matrices and bring the matrices back to where they lived and have the type cast locally so that they didn't have to pay as high a shipping charge. And the printer would order it based upon the kind of work that he would be doing. So letters. different words would be used in, in different letters. So, for example, if you had a press like Christopher Plantin's press in Antwerp, his press was a very scholarly press, so he would have needed to have typefaces to print what we would call now black letter was also called Gothic, but Gothic gets a little confused in North America because sans serif faces are called Gothic for some bizarre <laughs> reason. It's almost the but opposite of Gothic. It is, exactly. Yeah. But certainly what we would consider a Gothic letter, and the only way many of us are familiar with it today is the, the banner on some newspapers that are still sort of in a black letter or a Gothic letter. But he certainly would have had that. He would have had the Roman typeface. He would have had italic what they referred to as the exotic faces, non-Roman alphabets to print texts in Greek, in Hebrew, in Cyrillic, in mm. Arabic, in Aramaic, and so what on. What an so expense, forth. too. Yes, it was very mm. expensive. Not every printer would have had that full range of things, but someone who was printing, as Pantin did, polyglot Bibles, so he would need to have all those typefaces. Just thinking aloud, you'd want to have more E's, for example, than Z's, obviously. Mm -hmm. because, and I suppose if you're a particular kind of printer, there might be different letters that would appear more frequently than... Yes, your vowels are what you need the most of, and of those vowels, it doesn't really matter what language you're setting in, but certainly any language that's based on the Romance languages, based on Latin, E is the most common and they would and wear so, out. Yeah. So you always needed to have more ease. There was a, a kind of table that, that eventually type founders worked out of how many E's, how many A's, how many other letters. And as you point out, if you were setting in, in English, you need more H's than, say, if you were setting in Italian. You also would need to have special pieces of type cast as one piece of type for letters that required diacritical marks. And they had to be cast as one piece of type because you couldn't just sort of stick Standing something on, on the yeah, top, yeah, on the edge. And, yeah. Well, it wouldn't fit because the, the piece of type is a perfect rectangle. And okay. you can't just sort of squeeze something in between. Right. Okay, so we probably want to get, what, maybe a little well, manual we, that shows how many of each letter printer Well, that would probably be told to us in some of the later printer's manuals. Is Baskerville around at that point or not yet? Uh, Baskerville's around in the middle of the 18th century. Okay. Uh, he's beginning to do his uh, create his letter forms and, and uh, do his printing. 
Baskerville is also partly responsible for a change in the manufacture of paper because the letter forms that he was producing, which we we tend to call a a transitional letter form, had a little bit more exaggeration between the thinner parts of the letters and the thicker parts of the letters. The actual type. The actual type. Right. Um, And he felt that the paper which was available at the time, which was called laid paper, because it was made with paper molds that had very distinctive wire lines and heavier chain lines. Beautiful stuff. And yeah. when it, wherever the chain line was, you had less of the pulp settling on the paper mold as, as the paper was being made, and consequently the paper was slightly thinner there. Um, so that distorted his, his... Well, he thought it didn't show the, the typeface to its best. So he actually convinced papermakers, the, the Watmans, to try to make a different type of paper mold where the lines, that were the wires that were the going mesh, in two yeah. different directions were made to be essentially the same weight and woven together rather than strung across. So flat. So it was much flatter. They did develop a mold for what we call now call wove paper, but curiously, most of Baskerville's books ended up being printed on laid paper because they couldn't generate enough uh, wove paper to to meet his particular needs. Wove paper slowly begins to replace laid paper in in sort of general production of books by the beginning of the 19th century. We'd want information on the we'd type want, paper we'd want, ink uh, books about the way a printing house operates, the, the various printer's manuals, whatever we could find about the manufacture of type, as well as the type specimens that the type foundries issued. We'd want books about the ma- manufacture of paper. We'd also want to acquire books about binding. So we're sort of throwing the examples to the side right now, just talking about the things that, um, that record the technology. Uh, you talked earlier about lithography. We would want to acquire books about the production of images that went along with the text, whether they could actually be printed along with the text, as woodcuts could be, or whether they had to be printed in a different way. So we would want, for example, Abraham Voss's book about intaglio printing, printing of images using copper and later steel plates where the image that is to be printed is actually cut below the surface of the plate from the invention of printing until really the 20th century. In terms of text, we are almost always talking about text that is printed from movable type. How that type is manufactured and how it's set changes a bit. The text is set by hand using pieces of movable type. The manufacture of that type doesn't change very much for quite a long period of time. And it is the fastest and easiest way to produce text, especially if you want a lot of multiple copies. And that type is a relief surface, a raised surface. And so what we're printing when we're printing the text is we're inking that raised surface, taking an impression of it by pushing down the platen on a, the wooden press and the iron hand presses is a, a large rectangular shape. And it is very even on the bottom part because you're taking an impression of the entire area below that platen. Mm-hmm. So page of type uh, or form of type. The only thing that we can print of an image that can actually be locked up in the same 
form as the raised letters, the pieces of type, would be a raised image as well. So we're talking about woodcuts or wood engravings, in some instances metal cuts, where what is being inked is the raised surface. Mm -hmm. The background that you don't want to print has been cut away in one way or another with gouges or engraving tools. A wood cut or a metal cut or a wood engraving could actually be locked up with the type at, and printed at the same time because it's inked in the same way. The printed books from the Incunabula period, the period between 1450-ish and, and 1501, in the cradle, that's what Incunabula means, those books would have been illustrated with woodcuts. Some literary texts like Dante, one of the most famous illustrated books of the 15th century, the Hypnoratomachia Polyphily, a very strange text, but very beautiful, elegant wood cuts. It was printed at the house of Aldous Manutius. You needed a different type of printing press in order to print intaglio images, the copper plate images, because what you needed to do was to force the paper down into the, the lines that are below the surface. That meant that you needed quite a lot of pressure, more pressure than you could get with the common press. And the type of press that was used was called a rolling press. It basically consisted of a piece of wood on top of which the copper plate would sit that was rolled between two very heavy, solid wooden rollers. Mm-hmm. So it was like a mangle washing machine where you had these two rollers and you put your piece of cloth through it and as, as you turned the uh, handle of it, the clothes would come out the other side. So but we'd want examples, obviously, of what came off those presses. Well, we'd want manuals. Abraham Bosses is one of the earliest, possibly the earliest manual of the 17th century. And then we would also look to collect anything that tells us about the production of relief images as well. We'd also want to acquire a copy of Alois Seidenfelder's manual, Complete Course of Lithography. Lithography was discovered uh, by Seidenfelder in the very end of the 18th century, and it gives us our third method of printing both text and image. With intaglio, you could also write a bit of text into the plate. Mm. If you were really crazy, you could create an entire text. And there is an example of an edition of Horace's odes that was produced in the 18th century entirely as copper plate etchings. And you have to remember that you're doing this in mirror image if you were doing it. So you hire a dyslexic. Yes, except they didn't know. They wouldn't have called them that then. Lithography, when it was discovered, invented, what he realized was that you didn't have to have a raised or an engraved below the surface line in order to produce an image and, and text. That if you treated the surface of a type of limestone first and polished it enough and then used greasy crayons or pencils to draw your image, and used a greasy ink, and before you applied the ink, you covered the surface of the stone with water, based upon the chemical reactions that water and grease have. You the grease stays on the letters. The, the, and the grease images. stays on the letters, yeah. and the rest of the background mm-hmm. doesn't pick up the, the ink. You're basically using a flat surface. What he used, because it was readily available to him, 
were lithographic stones. Do you could also use a zinc plate if you treated it properly. So you would take the old laying out of the type, you'd get one image of it mm -hmm. on the lithographic stone or plate or whatever we want to call it, but this would again hugely uh, speed up the process of actually copying, would it? Well, um, there are a couple of things. We, in, in terms of what we're collecting, we, we would want Zeinenfelder's manual. Um, Did he write his own? He wrote his own. Mm -hmm. um, it, it was uh, published in German. It was translated into French, and it was also translated into English. And we'd want all of those, I think. Um, but we would, um, what he, when he was experimenting, what he worked out were a number of different things. Um, you, he ended up having to use and, and develop yet another kind of printing press. And in the early years of lithography, uh, it was a bit slower in terms of production. But what he realized, and one of the things that he was, in his, his uh, complete course of lithography, he included examples of what you could do. Um, hmm. And what one of, there were several areas where lithography made printing a lot easier. If you had a lot of text, no, not immediately. It wasn't actually faster to do it that way because letterpress was, was still the better route to go. But if you were producing something that you knew you had a very small audience for, you could actually just write it out, either on a paper that was specially treated so that it could then transfer the image to the stone. You can produce this little booklet. One example of the ways in which this was used was for military purposes. Small manuals that were done in a very limited number. The wonderful thing about lithography was that you could just replace exactly where you wanted it, the, the drawing that you needed to place there, and you didn't have to fiddle with creating a woodcut. And lithography also made it much, much easier to print music. It also mm -hmm. surpassed the copper plate engraving of maps because it was much easier to make corrections on the lithographic stone than it was to correct the copper plate. But initially lithography was slow in picking up because it did mean yet another type of press in order to take the impression. In a way it was a combination, especially the first presses that Zeinenfelder designed between a letterpress, printing press, and a copper plate press. There are many people after him who elaborated upon his initial discoveries and wrote manuals as well. We would probably want to add those to our collection. Charles Joseph Holmendel, who worked in London, was a brilliant lithographer, wrote a book called The Art of Drawing on Stone. He also translated some French manuals. We really love to have, and uh, I actually managed to buy for the collection here at Massey, a copy that had been presented by the inventor. We would definitely want to have all of the translations of Simon Felder's work, and as I said, subsequent manuals on lithography. Now when we get to into the 19th century, there really is a proliferation of printer's manuals. We would continue to buy the manuals which get bigger and bigger and bigger, mm. especially as they're having to accommodate changes in the way printing houses operated, especially those that start to introduce steam-powered equipment. Even though things were not fully mechanized, they became more assembly line. So you, instead of a setup like we have here, 
where the type cases are beside the presses, you have the bigger operations dividing that up, putting the composing room in one area of the house or printing shop, and keeping the presses, especially if you have steam-powered presses, in a separate area. Yeah, it sounds like an age of mass production, the Industrial Revolution, less of a craft than, than yes. just a manufacturing process. Yes. Certainly for smaller jobs, it might be faster to use a hand press. So um, typically you'd have both in the right. same house. The steam-powered machines were first introduced and used for the production of newspapers, and that's where the demand came for this. That's 1807 or 1810? Actually, the first, no, I think it's 1814. Cylinder. Yes, it was a cylinder press, although the type was still flat. It's not a cylinder press in the way we think of the cylinder presses today. The type was still flat Mm. in the bed, and the cylinder moved across it with the paper above it, so you were getting this kind of incremental print of the sheet. They still were using sheets of paper, but we would want to have the documentation of that. We would want to try to find material that was advertising the new equipment as it was coming out. Describing how it works and how why it you works. should buy it. Yes. Still, I mean, through the 1810s and 1820s, a lot of the work with the, the powered presses or printing machines, Britain, they called them power presses, and North America, they called them printing machines, they were still very experimental for, for quite some time. Mm. Uh, and you had to have a huge amount of capital in order to, even more capital than, than say, the iron hand presses would have, have cost. Which brings up a whole other area is the social impact. Yes. One that we'll have to postpone for another conversation. This role of the printer and publisher as an arbiter of taste, as a gatekeeper, and the fact that you know the, the barriers to entry are going down. A bit later in the century, you see depictions of these powered machines with a boy feeding the paper. Mm, you don't need an you expert. You don't need an expert yeah. to do the make ready that you needed with the hand presses. And of course the backlash against that is, is William Morris mm-hmm. and, uh, during the 1890s. Partner. So we'd want to have catalogs of firms like Robert Ho, who in, in the United States is producing printing uh, machinery. The Cope and the, the people whose presses we have represented here. But they all did produce sales and we would probably want to have some examples of those. To go back to papermaking for a moment, it was the first to be mechanized uh, in the early part of the 19th century. So we would want to buy books that document the mechanization of paper. It's funny, I'm just sorry, this is striking me as being kind of boring from a perspective of a book. The manuals themselves would be of interest to a, an engineering kind of mind versus a art, literature, book kind of mind. Yes and no. I might be wrong. Yes and no. I think to understand how the shop, if you're interested to go back to the point you made about sort of the social implications of it, Mm. if you wanted to understand how the operations of the printing house changed, then you can look at them in that way. If you want, you know, the kind of nitty-gritty detail of creating Check. an electrotype, for example, yeah. that does get very complicated. Linotype as well, and, and all okay. of these things yeah. that we haven't really arrived but at yet. But I think we would still want to have something to document these changes, and we would want to have them in the manuals that were being produced by the companies, or in terms of linotype or uh, monotype, mm-hmm. some of the type specimens that they were also issuing as well. And I guess if we could get it, we would probably want to have a manual on 
the care and repair of the pieces of equipment. We'd want to have some of the actual patents documenting the changes that are occurring in the printing machinery. There are changes that are occurring in the production of the bindings where we begin to see the development in the 1820s and 30s of what we now call publisher's bindings. You end up having different stages of it being done by different groups of people. Division of labor. Even though it hasn't actually become mechanized, there are accounts and we would probably want to try to acquire that. There was a, a periodical called The Penny Magazine, which was produced by Charles Knight. Issues of The Penny Magazine talk about the production of the book. We would like to have those supplements because it provides a kind of little lovely transition for us trying to document the history of the book because it does talk about the development of paper making and typefounding and various illustration processes and the equipment for printing. There's a, a later supplement from the 1840s that talks about the binderies. But there are also some books that were produced in the 19th century that talk about the history of the book because there is this very, very self-conscious pride in the achievements of the 19th century. To go back to type for just a moment, in the 19th century there were lots of gadgets invented to try to speed up uh, the setting of type. One of them, which was called the piano type, is always depicted with a woman sitting at the keyboard. As you hit a key, a letter would come out of the slot. You still had to add the spacing and do the justification, So you, and you then still had to distribute the type, so there was still work, handwork involved in doing it. Mm. It wasn't until would-be inventors were able to combine both casting and setting of the type as one process. So it's the development of the monotype machine and later the monotype machine. With monotype you had individual letters of type. So in the first half of the 20th century we'd be wanting to acquire some of the manuals about these different types of machines. We'd also want to acquire some of the type specimens that they were issuing, especially with monotype because monotype involved a lot of very, very talented people. Offset developed partly from the printing of biscuit tins and other metal tins. Printing on them. Printing on them. It was difficult to print directly onto the metal. They would print onto a kind of blanket or a cardboard. So that was what would go against the inked, whatever it was, lithograph. And then it would offset it onto the surface to be printed. That was applied to printing on paper just about the turn of the 20th century. Around the same time, dust jackets started to come in too, Mm -hmm. which opens up a whole other area that we haven't even talked about, and that is what the publishers did to promote the books. So, (laughs) where are we right now in terms of my collection? um, In the 20th century, we would want to document the uh, transition from letterpress to offset. And that's the big revolution. Sorry, what dates were those? At the beginning of the century, you have almost everything being produced letterpress. There were a number of ways of producing image in relief photomechanically, so we probably want to document those things. That happened in the 1870s and 80s. You would be able to create line blocks and half tones to print the images along with the letterpress. In the 1960s, photo setting was possible. There were enough type faces available 
that you were able to do that directly. If you wanted to use offset, which you could do earlier in the first half of the 20th century, what had to be done was to set the text, letterpress, proof it, and then take a photographic image of it and strip that in so that you could then create a plate and use that plate to to print offset. Initially in the 20th century, the offset would have been done using a flat surface, like the lithographic stone would have been flat. You had a, a cylinder coming over it to pick it up, and then a second cylinder with the paper on it taking it off of that image cylinder. But eventually, when they realized that they could use plates, mm. you ended up having the three cylinders, your image, your impression cylinder, and your offset. And, and you go from seeing the image on the plate in the right direction to the offset image where it's reversed to the paper where it's going in the right direction. So we want to document those changes but the experiments that were occurring to try to sidestep having to set the type and then photograph it to go to uh, a matrix that was in effect photographic negative. Those experiments actually started quite early on in the 20th century but really weren't successful until after the end of the Second World War and became commercially available in, say, the 1960s and 70s. So most of the books that were produced after that, with some exceptions, presses like the Steinauer Press and David Godin, what they tried to do was letterpress printing, in, especially Rocky, the Steinauer Press, find letterpress work. For illustrations, they worked with Merton Gravure, a more deluxe book. Almost always the illustrations were in a separate section of the book because it was almost impossible to combine them on the same page. But then you'd have a history text or a novel, the general run of publishing being produced offset using film setting. Film setting, by the 1990s, it's almost completely replaced with computer typefaces. My most recent purchase will be the first ever Kindle the first ever Sony reader, and what else? Anything else? Have you got those in your collection? No, and I'm probably not going to buy them. Um, That's crucial. That's No, in an institutional collection like Massey's collection, trying to preserve something where the hardware and software can easily become outdated, to have a, a Kindle or a Sony reader that you can just sort of see this thing, but mm. it's no longer functional. And that, that will probably happen, as we know it has happened to various generations of, of computers. Yes, yeah. um, Commodore. And, yeah. yeah. It's d- difficult to get manuals to know how to fix it and run it, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas with a book, you don't yeah, need any manual. You don't need a manual. You look at it. <laughs> Although there's a, there's a wonderful, I, this has been on YouTube for quite a while, I think it's called the Medieval Help Room. Have I've you seen, seen it? it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Can't figure out how this thing works. The scroll is so much easier. Yeah. Yeah, right. It won't work. Won't work. <laughs> no, it's hard, and and because we are we're not a museum of technology. What we have here, in a way of equipment, we have because we can still use it and we can still teach with it. In terms of of sound archives, for example, there may not be many of them, but those people who maintain a sound archive maintain. The equipment to play it. As it was originally heard. One of the difficulties that we have is that there's been no desire to maintain equipment. 
So this is the end of history then? Well, it's not the end of history. Well, there will be new technologies that will come along, like print-on-demand and a variety of other new ways of making books that we haven't dreamt of yet. And there there have probably always been sort of alternative ways of making books that we haven't had a chance to talk about today. What about my collection? My set now? No, no. I mean, you could decide that you want to have a Kindle or a Sony reader. We've possibly missed the boat on some of the early e-books. We should have been buying them. Are there any available? There may be. They would become artifacts, a screen. I think it's crucial, actually. Yes, I think you're right. And I think think your, your collection is taking a direction that I don't feel we really can here. Because? I'm trying to make certain that what we have here is is still usable for the future, and I don't see how I can do that with a, a Kindle. I can't guarantee that. That's not a great answer. I don't know. Uh, mm. Maybe it's just that I am too tied mentally and psychologically to the physical book. Yeah. Your collection would stretch my imagination, and I think that probably is not a bad idea. So I have no idea if you can pick them up at any reasonable cost or not. I don't know either. Be interesting. Yeah. Be worthwhile, I think. Yeah. As was this encounter. Oh, thank you. We've really gone with the, the evolution of the book. Yeah. And the primary collection is the documentation of that. Yeah. You know, we, we did talk a bit about some of the examples that you yeah. have, but basically we've ended up focusing on those sort of practical things that documented the changes yeah. uh, from the point of view of the people who were either buying the equipment or in order to use it. And that would make a very, very uh, extensive collection, even if you didn't start buying the examples like the King James Bible. Which is the fun collection, and I don't blame you for focusing on that. They're both fun. I had a chance to buy a really wonderful 17th century German Austrian printer's manual last year. You could probably pick them up for less, certainly less than the examples. The examples where all the attention is. These aren't cheap either, uh, especially for the (laughs) earliest ones, because they they don't survive in many copies. But even so, you got ink all over them. Yeah, Yeah. fingerprints. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I've been speaking with Marie Corey, who is the librarian of the Robertson Davies Library at uh, Massey College in Toronto. Thanks again. Thank you.